Crane. How are you doing, Jesse? What's good, Tony? I'm doing pretty well. I was out of the uh, town this week on work, and it's just always good to come home. I don't know if you've had that experience. Like, I've just been away. It's good to come home, and I've just been happy to be back, and also just loving the rhythm in the same way of, of the church, being able to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, coming in, going out. So it's been a bit refreshing for me. How are you doing? Good, good. We're uh, just settling down after a, a kind of a long Lord's Day. We didn't have Bible study tonight, so it's nice to just be home and relax. So not much going on. So episode five. We have made it to five. I know. Another prime number. In case somebody out there is heavy into math and has thought that we should address the fact that this is a prime number show, besides number two. Yes, someday down the road when we're um, we're like rich and famous podcast stars. Is that a, is that a thing? I think that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, that people are going to be analyzing this and trying to figure out the secret hitting meeting by what we planned out for the prime numbers. Yes, so, that that is fantastic. If it was like, uh, what's that? What's that movie like the U.S. where they're over the U.S. and they're like mapping out all this treasure with with Nicolas Cage in it? Oh what yeah, uh, National Treasure. Yeah, National Treasure. So yes. this is basically the podcast equivalent of National Treasure. So if you're listening to this, buried within this is some kind of secret code, which only you can decipher by looking at prime number episodes. Correct. It's it's ironic that we're talking about National Treasure and the Constitution because we're talking about politics tonight. We kill segues. We do. I just want to say that. That was, hey, that was a good one. <laughs> I know. That one actually I'm worked. That's what I'm saying. We are all over this. We are. Our family has a special connection to Nicolas Cage, too. We we always like we love making fun of Nicolas Cage movies since that one yeah. Christmas that Ashley brought home that uh, caveman uh, movie. And Adam was like, I've made fire. <laughs> we should do a podcast where you just go through a bunch of impressions, like between the Irish impression that you did last oh, week, yeah. Nicolas Cage. Uh, Aaron Moses' brother. Oh, you got yes, quite a repertoire. I do. Building. So we are doing this because we actually got a uh, email request from a listener to talk about politics. And since the elections, uh, since election day is just like over, just over a month from now, right? November what? Right. What's the middle of November sometime? I don't know the date. Um, you'd think I would like look those things up because we actually knew our topic ahead to of time. talk about this. But uh, we wanted to talk tonight about uh, politics a little bit and not so much like politics themselves. Like we, I'm not a political science person. Um, Jesse's not a political science person. But um, we wanted to talk about this because it's really important for Christians to know kind of going into these elections, sort of biblical positioning on what it means to be a citizen and what, what kind of responsibilities we have and then also like different ideas about how do we make the decision about who do we vote for and how do we uh, cast our vote for who our representative is going to be here's what i love about this topic two things first is that finally a topic that nobody else is talking about so we can weigh in with our expertise seriously about about politics and the second is that i actually do like this topic because this is one, especially in this election cycle, it's just so emotionally charged. Yeah. You know, no matter who you speak to, it just the conversation elevates very quickly generally. And the candidates themselves can be polarizing. So I love that there's room for us to talk about it because my hope is that our conversation will definitely be more light than heat, which is a little bit unusual. And just that we can extend like a graciousness to each other and to uh, you know our brethren writ large because... I think we have a responsibility as Christians to be involved, to be concerned, but to understand that where the appropriate line is to draw with politics in terms of what we expect from it, and also just that we would be good salt and light. So I think there's just a lot of good room for some general conversation that is encouraging, uplifting, that speaks to the sovereignty of God, that reminds us of where we are in this world and what ultimate reality is for that matter. So I am actually looking forward to discussing it with you. Yeah, so let's um, let me start here. I'm going to read um, a little bit out of Romans chapter 13, um, and this is a, a verse that um, or a passage that Christians go to to really kind of grip, get a grip around how we should understand our role um, in terms of the government and submitting to the government. Um, and I'll kind of read through, it and then I'll explain how I think it applies to our conversation. So, starting in verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist 
have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, when you have no fear of the one who is in authority. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, and if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, according to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Um, the section usually stops here, but I'm going to uh, read on a little bit more. Uh, verse 8, Owe no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this verse is usually used in two ways. Um, usually uh, Christians are telling other Christians that they have to obey the law unless um, unless the law is causing them to sin. So, for example, we, um, we have to obey the speed limit because that's the law and it doesn't cause us to sin in most cases um, to not drive over the speed limit. So... Um, disobeying the speed limit is a sin because we're not obeying the principle here of obeying the government. The other is um, that we're supposed to pay our taxes. Now, that's a kind of a contentious thing in some circles, um, whether or not the government actually has a right to garner taxes. But um, that's the other way this is used. Um, and this morning, I actually turned off the chapter headings, um, all the little chatter that the editors of the ESV put in to tell you like where a new thought is starting. And what I noticed is um, it's talking about Paying, uh, paying taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And then verse 8 says, Owe no, no one anything except love. And the way I think this uh, ties in is, first, Paul is telling people to be good citizens. So obey the law, support your leaders, pray for them. Um, in, his, in his day, he didn't have any say in who was the government. He didn't have any say who the emperor was. Um, as a Roman citizen, he probably had no say um, realistically who the Senate was. Um, I guess in, in theory, he could have become part of the Senate. Um, I don't know. I'm not a Roman historian, so I don't know how influential the Senate was during this era. I would guess probably not terribly influential. Um, but then this section here, it says, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think for, for our discussion tonight, that's really where we're going to go. Because um, we're not going to talk a lot about um, who it is that we're voting for. Um, and I think you'll find out why that is. I don't know who I'm voting for yet, um, so I couldn't tell you even if I wanted to. But we want to focus mostly on kind of high-level theoretical, how do we vote um, in a Christian way? How do we um, take the principles that Scripture teaches us about God's moral precepts, and how do we apply them to uh, the political voting scenario that we're in right now? Um, but the first thing I, I do want to say is... Um, as good citizens in a country that affords us not only the right and privilege, but the responsibility of nominating and electing um, officials, um, we don't really have a good excuse for not participating in that system. Um, if you're going to make a conscious decision to not participate in the system, that's participating in the system. Um, but there are a lot of people who are just, they don't have time or they don't want to take time away from their day or they don't want to have a discussion with their employer about having to leave early or sacrifice some wages to go do that. Um, I don't personally think that that's a legitimate thing for a Christian to be doing uh, because, like I said, we're called to be good citizens and we have this uh, responsibility to participate in this system that we were placed in by God. That's right on. That's exactly where I start because it seems to me that there is, because again, the candidates are so polarizing because there seemingly, as always, is a lot at stake in terms of leadership. So many are very worried and both Christians and non-believers alike are worried, but it's refreshing to me that as Christians, we can be concerned in a different way. It, just in terms of what you said, I have plenty of good friends who some have actually started organizations, others serve full time in lots of parachurch organizations particularly in, in Southern Africa. 
And so there are our brothers and sisters there who are struggling in economic and political environments that are absolutely oppressive at best. And sometimes at worst, they're actually bringing persecution, of course, upon their beliefs. And I see their testimony either directly or indirectly through my friends. And they have an understanding that they can trust God for the next day that's before them, even in an environment where that they're fleeing or that they're worried for their lives. And so the really the main question that we have to have before us is, can we trust God with our election? Yes. And I think we would all give, yeah, and a resounding yes to that. And that should automatically color how we feel to begin with. So the perspective is everything. And you know, I think the essential distinction for the Christian is that we're talking about two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men. And I know that sounds very cliche to, to say, but the bottom line is God instituted, as you just read, the authority of the civil magistrate, but he did not institute it as a means of redemption. So its task is temporal, it's justice, it's limiting the effects of wickedness. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't care about temporal justice for the poor or the oppressed or the widow. That's clear in Scripture that he does. He wants those institutions to reflect his unchanging moral character. But the bottom line is redemption is what we so, so desperately long for and need. And if we start with saying, as you said, we need to love our brothers and sisters as ourselves and love Christ, love God with everything that we have, then I think that totally turns this conversation on its head and rightfully so. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think maybe we can just talk a little bit about um, the major candidates. So, right, we have Hillary Clinton, who's representing the Democratic Party. Um, We have Donald Trump, who, what, like 12 months ago, everybody would have laughed if you said that Donald Trump was going to be the uh, Republican nominee. And then Gary Johnson is libertarian who doesn't know where Aleppo is and can't name any um, foreign leaders. I I wouldn't be able to name any foreign leaders either, um, but I'm also not running for president. So uh, it's probably not as important for me to be able to, I don't know, like pull those out in an interview on national television. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's the normal kind of like r- wide range of third party candidates that um, have no chance of winning the election. Um, so that's where we at. And so why why do you think um, what are some reasons you think that people are really kind of like unsettled right now as Christians and evangelicals um, looking at the, the landscape that's in front of us? I mean, let's let's be honest, um, either Hillary or Donald Trump are going to they're going to get right. the, the presidency unless something like catastrophic happens with one of their health or um, one of them, well, one of them goes to prison, which in both cases is a possibility on both fronts, but most likely one of them is going to be the president. So why, what about that makes Christians nervous right now? I think it's, it's likely just that you, you often hear people say like tongue in cheek, well, the the choice of the presidency is the last between the lesser of two evils. And usually we mean that at least half-heartedly, but I think there is a sensibility in this particular election cycle, that even if some of the candidates are ascribing to kind of these traditional, traditional you know political lines that usually comported with some kind of belief belief system, that the figures themselves are so polarizing. Now, I think Christians feel there's a lack of trust, that there's too much hubris, that there's just downright disrespect in many cases, and that there's a you know a lack of concern for God. Right. And long before this cycle, politics essentially replaced theology with religion because that made it easier to market ideas and philosophies. But I often think of like C.S. Lewis making that point about us, you know, having a chronological snobbery that in some at some points we always think that we are further advanced morally or whatnot because we live in a particular epoch that's more sophisticated And I think that also works in reverse with evil, that we often think this is the most evil time that there has ever been. And we tend to think these candidates represent that sense of evil in one way or the other. And again, this is really emotionally charged. So you can talk to people who I think would vilify either one of them and maybe rightfully or unrightfully so. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like I look at both candidates and I think either one of them represents something completely contrary to Christian principles. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's something that's important to remember is that people sometimes look at the presidential election um, and think I'm voting to put someone in the office. 
And in one sense, um, that's true in other kinds of um, elections, right? The Senate, the Congress, um, any sort of elected office besides the presidency that I'm aware of is a direct, your voting directly puts someone in the office. It's not like that with the president. But the way that our system is set up is you're casting your vote to say, this person represents me. And so um, then that person who the person who represents the most of the majority of the country is supposed to be the person in that office or the majority of a state or the majority of a county or whatever it happens to be the, the voting block. Um, and so for me, I look at I look at these candidates and I look at Hillary. Um, it's funny. And I don't know if it's a national ad or if it's a targeted ad. I don't know. But there's an ad that plays on Hulu and, and it. It's basically clips of Hillary Clinton throughout the years um, talking about how she is for children, how she's concerned yeah, about children. I, she's interested I know in this children. Ad. I know exactly what you're talking about. And when I first saw it, um, I actually thought it was going to be a anti-Hillary campaign because I was expecting the final clip to be the most recent thing where she talks about how an unborn person has no constitutional rights. And she actually calls um, the baby in the womb a person, which is something most liberal candidates and liberal figures won't do. And um, I look at that and I say, how, how can someone not see the um, inconsistency of saying I'm for children, I support children, but also being uh, pro-abortion? Um, and I say pro-abortion specifically, not pro-choice. I don't want to get on a soapbox on that because that's not really what our topic is tonight. But there's a difference between being pro-choice and pro-abortion, even though they end up kind of in the same place. But I remember seeing that ad and then when it stopped, I was like, that is so ironic. And then I said, like, someone should just add that clip to it and put it on. And maybe I should do that. But someone should just add that clip to the end of it and it would make the perfect contradiction to her advertisement. Um, and then on top of that, being so liberal and so um, progressive, even more than um, Bill Clinton was when he was in office and even more than Hillary Clinton has been as a political entity, um, she really does represent some legitimate threats to um, religious liberty and other kinds of foundational constitutional liberties. Um, and with a Supreme Court justice position open, who knows, it's doubtful that Obama's nominee is going to go through um, before the end of his term. And then at that point, his nominee goes away, as far as I know. Um, so that's really concerning to me is that I can't say Hillary represents me. But then I look at the other side and I look at Trump, who um, no one would say is a moral person. Um, he is the embodiment of greed and um, sexism and um, in a lot of ways, racism and just really despicable character traits. Um, and I look at that and I say, well, I, I don't I don't really understand how he can represent me either. And so for me, looking at it as saying um, I'm casting my vote to say who represents me. I can't vote for either of those people in gun conscience. Um, now, if you're if you're thinking about it in terms of a more strategic move of how do I and we'll talk about this in a little bit, I guess. But how do I um, how do I advance Christian principles and Christian morals in the country? Which which of the two candidates is more likely to do that? That's a whole different calculus. Um, but as far as I know, you know, a lot of Christians just look at this and they go, I I can't in good conscience say that either of these people um, represent me in a way that I can vote for them. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people feel, you know, I remember when, when Mitt Romney was running, um, the big discussion of the day was, can I vote for him because he's a Mormon? Um, and that's, that's a good question. I don't want to make light of that question. Um, especially with some of the claims that Mormons have about, a Mormon president, Messiah figure rescuing the constitution. Um, but it's a totally different kind of question because no one was saying at the time, well, this guy doesn't, this guy's not a relatively moral person. This guy doesn't stand for general family values, things that Christians find important. Um, it's totally different now though. There's no candidate that I'm aware of that I could really say, yeah, this, this person, roughly lines up with a Judeo-Christian ethic of morality right. and sexuality and, and, you know, traditional values. There's nobody. There's nobody there. Trump has said some things that sound like that, but I, I have no reason to think that's not just um, something he's saying to, to you know, garner votes. Does that all make sense? I mean, how, what do you think about that? It does. I think that's what makes this so difficult 
it's what makes conversations even just like this difficult because it's not even just about necessarily, as you noted, choosing a person, but the approach by, that we use to arrive at that, whether we're voting one particular issue or whether we're trying to weigh out and, and see who's going to be the best one to advance a, a worldview or to undertake at least by disguise, I suppose, some type of biblical principle who is going to be honest and truthful and bring appropriate wisdom and discernment to that particular office. And sometimes at the end of the day, where I come to is God is great and his word is so clear that he's sovereign over nations, which is incredible, that nobody can thwart his strong outstretched arm and that we as as his children and as Christians that our first and primary work always must be prayer. And so that I fear that sometimes, even in my own life, I'm, I'm quick to read, quick to want to discuss and perhaps even debate these issues, but not bathe them in prayer, really coming before God and asking that as I seek, as I believe the scriptures lay out, that Christians should promote influence on government, that I am doing that in a way that is being passed through the sieve of the scriptures where I'm quick maybe to do that with some other things. We've talked about worship, we've talked about the church, and those things seem to be like immediately connected. And we understand that if we sever ourselves from communication with God through prayer, that those things will suffer. But this is not the kind of thing we can just reason ourselves through, that we definitely need the Spirit to guide us in these decisions. And and for each one to be thoroughly convinced, to have courage of conviction, but to be thoroughly convinced. So here's the thing. That's like an unsatisfying answer, right? Because there's no like... It's not like, here's what we've decided. It, you know, it's much easier. It's it's regulative or normative. Like, there these there's just like, it's not even like a Venn diagram. There's just like circles overlapping everywhere. Right. And it's it's complicated and hard. So one of the things I wanted to ask you, though, about this that's that's been on my mind as I think through this is how do we vote? Like, there's lots of issues. There's lots of things that the politicians are saying are principal to them, our primary concern. But I guess my question is, when we think about what's important, are there things that are more important than other things? That is like, should we weight the concerns? Do we vote one particular issue or do we lay them all out in front of us and we weight them and we score them and we say, this this person is probably going to be the best case? What do you think? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think... I think this just comes back to how difficult this particular election is, too, because it, it used to be that even if you were a one issue voter um, and you had that one issue, the 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 candidate that you would vote for based on that one issue probably lined up with you on all the other issues, too. So um, I, I'm a firm believer. I cannot vote. Um, I cannot cast my vote to uh, say that someone represents me or to put someone in office who is not um, willing to stand for the rights of um, unborn children at every stage of development. Um, Amen. Uh, unequivocally. Um, I, Amen. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want to get into the tiny percentage exception cases. Um, we're talking about general laws. If they're not willing to, to support a law in the books that says abortion should be illegal and um, doctors who perform abortions um, should be considered to be murderers. Um, I, I can't vote for that person. Um, but it used to be that if you found the person who was willing to say that, that they would also support traditional marriage. They would also support right. liberty. And and that's where we get to a difficult choice here is that um, we don't have a candidate like that um, on the conservative side. And it's not even really clear whether um, whether Donald Trump could be considered pro-life. Um because he said in the past that he, you know, he he hates abortion personally, but he supports the um, the legal right for a woman to have that, and that that could have been political posturing then, um, or his statements now could be political posturing. Who knows? Um, but I, I don't know that we have a candidate that's willing to say that on either side. But I think I think some some issues are more important than others. Um, you know, a, a candidate who's going to support. Um, like tighter restrictions on gun control or looser restrictions on gun control. That's an important topic. Um, I don't want to say that it's not, but 
I don't know that that would override other voting concerns. Um, you might run into something uh, along the same lines of like taxes. Um, nobody likes taxes, but I don't know that someone who's going to increase or decrease the taxes is an overriding concern. But there are some things like the sanctity of marriage, um, the the place of the family in the culture and the rights of the parents um, to raise their children in a way that is in accord with their belief, the freedom to um, not only to hold certain beliefs, which is kind of how freedom of religion has been redefined as sort of freedom of worship, but actual freedom, um, the freedom to have a free practice of religion without interference by the government. Um, those things are all really, really important. And I don't think that we can, um, I don't think we can, can ignore the the sort of critical point that we're in. There's a lot of alarmist people out there, I think, that are um, kind of sounding, have been sounding the alarm for years that, um, you know, pretty soon churches aren't going to be able to meet on Sunday. And, and I don't, I don't think that right. we're going to see that in our lifetime, but it, it isn't, it isn't alarmist to say that our religious, our religious liberty is being chipped away as we go. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, the whole thing is just very, difficult. And I think that level of difficulty is often what pe makes people worried and concerned more than usual. Now, incidentally, a great resource, especially for religious liberty, if you're looking for a wonderful reform perspective, is uh, Spurgeon had so many amazing things to say in The Sword and the Trial. He's actually got like 11 particular points about re religious uh, liberty and they're uh, fantastic. So it's wonderful too to think that there's been this rich trove of wonderful people that have written tomes in the reform tradition in the reform stream who have really thought hard and heavy about this and it's a bit comforting to know that it wasn't easy for them either either yeah and that in many ways there's nothing new under the sun this is this is difficult and this is hard and i completely agree that we must be concerned and i, I think this is where it comes into searching the scriptures and really meditating on the law of god praying through that law so that we might come to a place where, where we're putting, in the election especially, first things first. And yeah. certainly the concern for a life that you just shared is one of them. I, I knew exactly what you were talking about with that Hillary commercial. Um, that Hillary Clinton commercial, to me, the first time I saw it, I thought it was so ironic. And it's funny that you thought it was actually like a reverse ad because yeah. it got all the way to the end. And she is really ch saying what a champion and advocate she is for children. She, there's even like a quote, if you've, if you've heard it, of course, where she's saying like every person in this room has a right to essentially be the person who they are. Right. And I remember mar remarking to my wife at the time when I saw it, that's true, I guess, unless you were unborn, right. <laughs> in which case that right is not available for you. And so it just speaks to exactly what you said, that for all of us, we are sinful people and we have these blind spots and unless the Lord redeems us, unless we are changed by him and given that, that heart of flesh, that we are prone to this type of error. So it does make it hard for us to make a decision. It's just difficult, but I agree with you as well. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle. Right. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, be trying to make an influence in our government. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think too, like there are, there are good, wise Christians um, who have expressed a, a leaning of voting one way or another. So um, you have some some Christians who are saying that they, they're going to vote for Hillary because Hillary represents um, kind of a sort of a social justice candidate. Um, they, they anticipate and expect um, that if she's elected, we'll see more social equality and social justice. Um, particularly, you hear this particularly coming out of some of the black communities um, that are are facing some serious uh, racial oppression, um, and in many ways at the hands of the government themselves. And so, I think that's a legitimate concern. And you you do have some people that are saying, you know, if we really want this to stop, then we need to be willing to. Um, put someone in the office who can stop it. Um, and the other side of the coin, you know, you have some pretty well-known Christians like Wayne Grudem who've come out publicly talking about um, throwing in their support for uh, Donald Trump. And, right. um, you know, Donald Trump has collected kind of this coalition of evangelical leaders. Um, nobody can see me do air quotes because this is a podcast and not a video stream, but I'm doing air quotes about evangelical <laughs> I leaders. Got your, I got your back. Um, and, and he's collected these people and I'll, some of them are, are good, sound people. Um, Franklin Graham, for better or worse, with his methodologies and, and 
um, disagreements with the reform camp, things like that. But Franklin Graham is a good evangelical. Um, he, you know, he's kind of the religious right. He kind of represents that camp. But he's an orthodox guy. He doesn't teach heresy. He's not preaching a prosperity gospel. And then you have some people that are preaching a prosperity gospel that have been pulled into this. Um, but they're saying things like um, Donald Trump is the candidate who's going to preserve our religious liberty. He's the one that's going to um, strike down some of these executive orders about, um, you know, gender inclusive bathrooms and things like that, that um, the Obama administration has just declared executive orders saying we have to let people use bathrooms or issued guidances or whatever. I'm not I'm not a legal expert, but um, so they have a they have a good point that we should be looking at a candidate who can do that. Um, like I said earlier, I, I don't think I can in good conscience um say that those people represent me. So I, I'm not sure how that plays in. But I think the point needs to be made that there's not a Christian candidate. Um, neither candidate is a Christian candidate. Um, I'm not convinced either candidate is actually a Christian, even though they both claim to be. But right. it, there's not God's candidate. If that's not how it works in our country, and it never has. There's never been God's candidate. Um, but at the same time, we need to be cautious of condemning other Christians for for voting according to their their individual consciences. Um, I don't know anybody that I would consider a Christian who's saying, "Yeah, I'm voting for Hillary because she's pro-choice." If someone said that, I would have to seriously question whether or not um, whether or not they are a Christian. Um, at the same time, I haven't heard anybody saying, "Well, yeah, I'm voting for Donald Trump because." Um, you know, he is he's going to enforce these racial discriminatory policies on Mexico and on um, religious restrictions. You know, it's ironic that they say that he's the religious liberty candidate when he's talking about banning people of a certain religion from our country. But that aside, um, I haven't heard anybody say, yeah, I really want to I really want to violate the Constitution and ban Muslims from the country. So I'm voting for him. I, I think I would also have to question whether or not that person is truly understanding the scriptures if that's the position they want to take. Um, uh, Cause I, I don't think that's constitutional. It's a violation of our laws. And I think just in terms of how God calls us to live at peace with people, I don't think we can discriminate in that way from allowing them into the country, but um, we shouldn't look down on those people and say, well, those people aren't Christians who are voting for Trump or voting for Hillary uh, because we're not in a place to judge that. And they have to obey their consciences um, to not obey your conscience is sin. Sometimes to obey your conscience is sin too, but um, we know that it's a sin to not obey your conscience. So if someone feels convicted one way or another, um, they have to, they have to be obedient to that conviction. Yeah. I totally down with that. But basically this episode should have come with like, several warnings and disclaimers yeah. like just straight up like Seriously. we are not political scientists we are not legal experts yeah it's heavy-handed uh talk because it, yeah it's just messy i mean there's no way to, to parse out yeah. all of these different views and all of these different convictions that the candidates themselves had so what you might really appreciate about one conviction may stand completely juxtaposed to another area of right. their life and that's hard. And so it's it's important for me, at least in my own meditation and my own kind of pastoral understanding of government, to remember that God has given the civil government as, as a gift, that it's it's something that's subject to God's rule and it's used for his purposes. And that's why it's just so important at the end of the day to be able to trust in his sovereignty at the same time to understand, as we keep saying, like the responsibility. I, I would encourage everybody, everybody, I mean, you as well, to, to vote, to wrestle through it. Because I think that that's still a tremendous, not just like civic responsibility, which we often hear, but it is something that God has given us as a liberty and a freedom to exercise. And I do think that he has an expectation for us. One of the scriptures that I find like really interesting um, to that effect is, I found this like fascinating. So all these different instances in the New Testament where you do have men and women of faith interacting with the government. So it's interesting to me that you find John the Baptist in particular in the gospel of both Matthew and Luke interacting with Herod Antipas and who of course had been a tetrarch. He was appointed by the Roman emperor at some point. And, you know, Matthew 14, uh, you know, it says for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's interesting that Luke's gospel adds 
John the Baptist preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So you have this instance where there is, John is, is exerting some kind of influence, obviously, in, in the local government, the place where he's able to do so. And that's not unlike what Paul does, of course, like when he's in prison in Caesarea, for instance, I guess it's like Acts 24, and he is interacting with the governor, Felix. And it, you know the scriptures are clear that, Luke's clear when he's writing, that he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, yeah. which is wild. And of course, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Right. Like I, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you, which I, I feel like is code for, and we're done here. Exactly. So, but there is that influence and there's these wonderful examples that we have to not give up doing good. And part of the good works, I think that God has set aside for Christians is to love their neighbors well by voting as well as they can and to serve the communities by doing the same thing. And what do you think about that? What do you think about what the scriptures have to say about us being involved in government and politics in particular. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that actually, that's what I noticed when I was reading that verse earlier is that this whole thing about, um, obeying, um, obeying your governments and paying your taxes and respecting ruling authorities, it final, the final portion of it. And like I said, our, our English headings that the editor supply break this up and I don't know why, um, it, it ends with saying, love your neighbors. And so we have to, that's another thing we have to think about when we're voting is, if I cast my vote in this way, am I loving my neighbors well? Um, yes. Am I doing something? And that that ties into the pro-life discussion. It ties into the, exactly. the racial tensions and the religious, all of that stuff. It really comes back to us as Christians looking at what we're doing and looking at it and saying, can I in good conscience say that when I check this box or this box that I'm loving my neighbor well? Um, and that may be that may even be different depending on which community you live in. Um, if you live in a community that is rife with government oppression of minorities, um, then loving your neighbors well may be possibly. I, I don't know if it is or not, but it may be um, voting for Hillary. If you're living in Arizona, where there is a really significant illegal immigration um, crime problem, where people are being murdered on a regular basis by um, illegal immigrants, maybe voting for Trump is the way that you love your neighbor best. Um, I don't know. I can't make that decision for you. That's something if you if you really are torn about it, you should talk with your pastor. You should speak with your spouse. Um, you should talk with your friends and you should search the scriptures. But um, I think that's where it really comes down. And, and I just think it's so important, um, you know, maybe to kind of wrap this section up a little bit. It's so important for us to remember that whatever the outcome is, when we get done with election day, um, God is still on the throne, right? That Amen. whole section in Paul, the whole point of it is that God puts rulers on the throne. Um, so he uses, in our country, he uses our voting as a means for that. He uses our participation in the system as a means for that. Um, and, and another thought too, just throwing it out there, it's important for us to participate in elections all the way up and down the, the political spectrum. Um, Calvin has this doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which basically says that um, the population, the populace shouldn't overthrow governments because the population is to submit to their governing authorities. But a magistrate of a lower rank has a responsibility to overthrow the magistrate above them if that magistrate is not doing their job, if they're not following the law, if they're not serving and honoring God. And so we may not be able to influence, um, for example, I may not, I'm my vote, if I'm being honest, like my vote doesn't change who the president is. Um, yes, yes, I, if everybody thought that way, nobody vote, blah, 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 all that I get. But my vote at the end of the day is not going to change who the president is. But I might be able to have more influence in a local election or in a state election. And that may be the factor where that person in a state election, um, you know, North Carolina governor is a very good example, right? The whole country basically gets on board with this transgendered bathroom thing. And the North Carolina governor just says, no, my constituency doesn't agree with that. And so we're not going to do it. And so the government above him, you know, tries to use fear tactics, Corporations are pulling out. The NBA is saying we're not going to do games there. You know, um, college basketball is saying we're not going to do games there. Um, but that lesser magistrate is doing his job, and he's holding back the higher magistrate by refusing to 
disobey the law, which calls him to represent the people who voted for him. Um, so that's a really good concrete example in the world right now. So voting for your local elections is really important too. Yeah, turning this on its head for me is all about what you just said, this idea of making a litmus test being loving your neighbor as yourself and seeking after the first work in anything as prayer. I love that Luther said in referring to preparing for his own preaching, he said to have prayed well is to have studied well. And I think you can replace study with so many other actions that we undertake. I think to have prayed well is to have voted well Yes. and to really have meditated on that. And this idea that Loving my neighbor means seeking good laws to protect marriages and families, to stand up for those who are marginalized and those who need protection badly, including unborn children. It should be among our primary concerns. So it's great that it only took us like 40 minutes to solve the entire election quandary. Like that's got to be a record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wish we had more than like 130 people that listen to the show because (laughs) 130 people is probably not. So share this with your friends. Tell everybody you figured out how to vote by listening to this podcast. No, don't do that. The answer is Jesus. Yes. The answer is Jesus. That's true. Um, If you vote for Jesus, it's not going to do anything though um, because you can't, on the presidential election, a person who's not on the ballot can't actually win the presidency. So that's true. Plus, totally redundant, already reigning king. That's probably correct. another episode. Yes, that's that's eschatology king. episode. Yes. So instead, what we should just do is transition to wild questions that perhaps people have asked us via the Facebook group. Yes. Yes. We have a Facebook group now. So um, if you go on Facebook and you look up Reformed Brotherhood, um, you'll find a page which doesn't have a lot of functionality, but you'll also find a Facebook group. And we have some people now that are in there who are starting some discussions, and that's pretty exciting. Um, But before we get into questions, I just want to touch base on something we said last week. So last week I talked about Phillips, Craig, and Dean, um, and I commented about a song they wrote and how the the fact that they were modalists changed the meaning of the song. Um, And I was sent an email by one of our listeners um, which included a document that Phillips, Craig, and Dean, um, not representing their churches, representing their musical group, um, had sent where they essentially uh, repudiated their former uh, modalistic denominations. So without ever admitting that they themselves were, were modalists, they did acknowledge that they were part of a denomination um, which uh, was modalistic. So I just want to read this letter real quick, and I'm going to read it at warp speed so you can slow me down on your podcast app if you need to. Uh, Dear friends in Christ, we appreciate you taking your time to ask our ministry about doctrinal concerns, specifically Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and their belief in the doctrine of the Godhead and the Trinity. Unfortunately, there were articles written many years ago that aggressively labeled the members of Phillips, Craig, and Dean as anti-Trinitarian. These internet rumors have been hurtful not only to our ministry but to the body of Christ in general. Should be noted that the churches led by members of Phillips, Craig, and Dean are three independent, non-affiliated, non-denominational Christian churches that are served by each individual church's vision, eldership, and presbytery. Phillips, Craig, and Dean fully acknowledge their past denominational affiliations and are grateful for their heritage. However, they reject the teaching of modalism, also known as Sabellianism. Although none of the members of Phillips, Craig, and Dean are affiliated with any denomination collectively, the ministry of Phillips, Craig, and Dean affirms a statement of faith of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then they provide their phone number and a link to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is the doctrinal standard of the Southern Baptist Convention. So um, if this is actually the case and they've repudiated their uh, modalism, which it seems as though they have from this letter, that's great. Um, as, As Christians, we should rejoice when people turn away from Um, error of any kind. Um, When they move towards the truth, especially on something as central as the Trinity, we should really rejoice. Um, I do have some concerns, though. So I want to read, this is from an article on the Alpha and Omega website that was kind of talking about the controversy. Um, Some of these quotes are from their faith statements from their websites, from churches they used to be a part of. And one of them, I think, is from a private email to James White. But um, let me just read this quote from Randy Phillips. Um, who is the Phillips from Phillips, Craig and Dean. Um, It says, we believe in one God who is eternal in his existence, triune in his manifestations, being both Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and that he is sovereign and absolute in his authority. So that word manifestations is what you need to clue in on when you're talking about modalism. Is Modalism, roughly said, uh, is that there's one divine person who uh, reveals or manifests himself in three different ways. 
Um, so this statement here, it's, there's all sorts of like jumbledness in it. But right there, he's basically saying God is one person who manifests as three persons or three three modes, which is where the word modalism comes. Um, and then from Dan Dean's church website at the time, this is a, an old article. This is from 2013, so not too old, but it's, it's, it's not super current. Um, it says, there is one true God that has manifested himself as father in creation, son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in emanation. Um, and that is, uh, like I said, that's from Dan Dean's old church website, who is the dean from Phillips Craig and Dean. And um, this one's even more troubling because it says, man, you know, it's using that manifestation language. But then it specifically calls out the different um, sort of uh, redemptive epochs that each um, each manifestation occurred in. So the one God was manifested as father in the act of creation. He was manifested as son in the act of redemption and manifested as the Holy Spirit in emanation. I'm not exactly sure what they're um, re what they're referring to there. So those are the concerning statements that we saw on their websites and in correspondence when this controversy hit. The letter I read earlier is from 2014, so it was after that. Um, it looks as though all three of these men have now associated with other churches that are not a part of the oneness Pentecostal denominations that they were a part of previously. And two of them, um, two of them, their websites, the faith statements just say, we affirm the Apostles' Creed. Um, one of them has some more explanation about some specific things. Um, it's interesting to note that none of them have a statement on the Trinity specifically. I don't I don't want to read into that too much, but none of them have a um, an expanded statement on the nature of God or the Trinity, um, even the ones that have more. But on um, Crosspoint Church, which is, um, I believe, Sean Craig. Yep, Sean Craig, who's the Craig from Phillips Craig and Dean. Um, his statement of faith on his website says, we believe in one God revealed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, um, like I said, if they actually have turned away from error and towards truth, then I absolutely rejoice. And I have no qualms with saying that. I'm not 100% convinced that that's actually the case. There's been a lot of, of good reasons to say that. Um, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, I actually wrote a paper last year on sort of the doctrinal issues with the Baptist faith and message. Um, it uses that same language of God being revealed as three persons or in three ways. So it's not as though the faith statement on Sean Craig's um, church website is in itself a problem. Um, if It might just be imprecise. I don't know. Um, I hope that it's just imprecise. But um, we should still be cautious and careful when we look at people who've come out of um, come out of modalistic or any sort of um, heretical movement. Um, unless they're willing to burn bridges with their former uh, their former churches and in some cases family members, a lot of these kinds of um, heretical cultish kinds of groups, um, it runs in families. And unless they're willing to publicly burn bridges. Um, I think we need to be cautious. So thank you to who sent that in. I'm not going to say your name because I don't have permission to, but thanks for sending that in. Um, we always love to get feedback. And we are going to move on to a few. Um, well, we'll just do one question because we're going to run short on time. Um, so let me just find it here. So uh, we have a question from John uh, Chantry, and I'm just going to read the whole thing. And then Jesse, when I'm done reading, you can kind of summarize what what's sort of the the impulse behind the question is. So John writes, I was baptized as a baby, lived an unrepentant life, tried to read the Bible and get right with God, but it never worked. I felt separated from God. I felt convicted through the word that I hadn't actually given my life to God. And the first act of that was baptism. I got baptized and my life has changed and my fruit has changed. Anyone who knows me knows God is now actively working in my life. Why? If infant baptism is supposed to be it, why did God not use me until I publicly confessed and was baptized? So this is like a, a pretty real and deep question. And I've had some experience with this before in terms of people really wondering what is the purpose and effect of a baptism, which sounds to some extent what John is driving at right. is what does it affect and what is its purpose in the believer's life? So this is perfect. Let's just go straight from politics right into straight up 
Pedo baptism, credo baptism. Like, yep. You've got 30 seconds, Tony, go. We went from the most controversial thing we could think of in secular uh, world to the most controversial thing we could think of in the reform world. So thanks for that, John. Um, so I think John's question is a good question, but I think it probably, um, if I'm looking at context clues, I think it probably misunderstands a little bit of uh, what is actually taught by the reformed position of um, pedo-baptism or child baptism. So in the reformed tradition, there are um, Baptists um, who would affirm believers only baptism. And then uh, in the um, Presbyterian tradition or the, the more precisely reformed tradition, um, you would have uh, people who would affirm infant baptism, and they're sometimes called pedo-baptists, um, or maybe you hear them called oiko-baptists, which comes from like household baptisms, covenant baptism, that kind of thing. Um, and the that position would affirm that you baptize both believers, professing believers, and their children, where the um, credo-baptists or the adult uh, believers would be you just baptize uh, adult believers. And so I just want to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the most comprehensive statement on um, Presbyterian theology. And this comes from chapter 28, and it's from verse 6, uh, not verse 6, chapter 28, section 6. Um, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost, to such, whether of age or infant, as the grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. Um, so what John's question, I think, is getting at is baptism does something. And for John, it seems like he's expecting it to be the thing that um, sort of makes his faith vibrant. Um, he talks about how he was baptized as a baby, but his faith didn't feel vibrant. He didn't really feel like he had a connection or a relationship with God. And it was only once he decided that he needed to have a connection with God and, and was obedient in the act of baptism that that started to happen for him. So just a few observations from John's question. It seems to me like it would be more reasonable, especially from a Baptist perspective, um, to say that the decision to be baptized and the decision to follow Christ and be obedient in getting baptized is probably what you need to look at more than um, baptism itself. It's kind of a weird position as a, as a uh, believer's baptism person to think that baptism had some sort of um, actual effect in uniting yourself with God in, in like a real concrete way. Um, union with Christ happens in baptism for Baptists too, but it's a, it's a different thing. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is I think John has probably misunderstood um, the Reformed pedo-baptist position. Um, and that the Westminster Confession is a lot of uh, 17th century speak. So let me try to, to sort of uh, modernize it on the fly. So it says the, the efficacy of baptism or the effect that baptism brings about is not tied to the moment of time when it's administered. So baptism for the reformed is effective to do something. Um, but that effect doesn't necessarily happen when the baptism is administered. So you can have right. a baby who's baptized um, when they're an infant and then later in life comes to faith and the effect of baptism doesn't happen until they come to faith, even though it's right. baptism that brings about the effect. Um, so that's why it's not um, like Roman Catholic ex operato, apparata, whatever it is in Latin, um, working of the work, kind of a mechanical effect. Um, it's also why it's not the Lutheran position, which is baptismal regeneration, but regeneration is sort of conceived of in a different way. Um, and then it says, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred. So baptism is a means of grace. Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians both affirm that. Um, the way that that's affirmed is different. But what this is saying is that the ordinance or the sacrament, when it's rightly administered, really does convey grace. But again, going back to the beginning of that, that grace may not be, con the grace of baptism may not be conveyed in the moment of ministration. It may actually be later in life. And that actually right. goes for adult professing believers too. Sometimes you have an adult convert who makes a profession and isn't actually converted. And then later they become a convert. Uh, uh, Charles Wesley, or John Wesley was like that. He, he was raised as a Methodist. So he was 
baptized as a baby and he um, actually lived most of his adult life and went on missionary journeys and started missionary schools and then came back to London. And it wasn't until after all of that, when he had started missionary schools and stuff like that, that he actually said he was converted. Um, so that's not just a baby versus adult thing either. Um, and then it says, um, it's the Holy Ghost which conveys, conveys this grace, um, whether to infants or persons of age. And that grace belongs to the counsel of God's will in his appointed time. So um, I guess what I would say to kind of wrap out um, my response to John's question is there's two things that I would ask you is how do you know that it was not the first baptism that was actually what caused this sort of connection, but it was just God's appointed time for you to do this as an adult. Um, that would be how I would understand, like I was baptized as a baby, for example, and will Jesse and I will do a whole show on baptism. Cause it's, it's a really interesting way that our stories kind of interweave and, and like, you know, that's just how yeah, things are. Um, but I would say I was baptized as a baby. I was actually baptized in a Lutheran church. I don't think that that had any effect at the time, but I would say that later in life, when I became an adult and and became a Christian and began following Christ, it was still my baptism that united me to Christ. It just didn't unite me at the moment of administration. My baptism united me later when it was joined with faith and when it was joined with the confession of sin and repentance and all exactly. of those other things that attend justification. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say is I would say for John um, – I would say that it was actually the first baptism that was effective. The second baptism um, may have been, and we'll talk about my baptism, rebaptism, all that stuff. But that second baptism may have been a very important public declaration for you, and it may have served a purpose. Um, but I don't think that that was what united you to Christ. I think that your first baptism did. Um, I can see why it doesn't feel that way, but we don't do theology based on our feelings. So the second thing that I would say is your your question seems to be rooted in an objection um, to Lutheran ideas of baptismal regeneration. So like I said, the Reformed believe that baptism does something, but they don't necessarily believe that that's something that it does is tied to the moment that baptism is applied. Um, right. So that's, that's how I would answer the question. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jesse? That was a super thorough answer. And of course, I agree. What, but what's interesting is you and I do have some different perspectives, of course, on, on baptism. But the crux of this particular question, I think, comes down to defining the difference between means of grace and regeneration. Right. I'll add and in there. So, um, I agree. I'll toss in there that um, section seven of chapter 28 uh, says the sacrament of baptism is but to be once administered to any person. So John and myself are both uh, in decent company uh, of those who have had a rebaptism experience. But if we're strictly speaking from a Westminster Confession perspective, um, that shouldn't have happened. Um, so I just want to be transparent with that. I don't want to try to pluck this out uh, of context here. And then it also does say, just for those of you who might be thinking about this and saying, well, if baptism does something, what about me? I've never been baptized. Uh, can I possibly be saved? Um, verse uh, Section 5 says, although it be a great sin to contemn, which just means like repudiate or um, disdain, uh, to contend or neglect this ordinance, speaking of baptism, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all the baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So what that's saying is that although we're called to be baptized, uh, so it's a sin not to be, it's a sin for a Christian to say, I refuse to be baptized, um, the grace and salvation, the effect of baptism is not so inseparably connected to baptism that you can't be saved or experience the effect that baptism brings about apart from baptism. Exactly. You should be baptized. Um, being baptized is a command that Christ has given to his church that all Christians, professing Christians, should be baptized. Um, but you're not unsaved. There are some Christian groups that would say if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Um, even Roman Catholics wouldn't say that, but there are some really conservative um, Protestant groups that would say if you haven't been baptized, then you're not you're not saved, and you can't be saved until you're baptized. But the reform position is not that. Um, so just take heart if you have never been baptized. But if you haven't been baptized and you're listening to this and you're a Christian, then you need to talk to your pastor this Sunday about getting Get baptized done. as soon as possible. There's no reason Get not it to. Done. You really need to you need to be proactively praying through how you're going to vote and you need to go get baptized. Yes. Those are the, and those are both two like highly 
nuanced subjects, which right. we could have spent hours and hours sorting through. And perhaps one day we will. Maybe but, we will. I'm sure that we'll have an episode on baptism. I look forward to yes. it. We should just like slap all of those things like right together, like pedo communion, baptism, Sabbatarianism, yes. theonomy. Just do like a, a marathon. Like we'll just talk for like 10 or 12 hours straight and people will love it. I'm just going to record it and then never put it out because we'll lose every <laughs> single listener if we do that. It'll be like the lost episode. Yes. I love it that. Will. Well, to round things out and to book in the conversation, a question was posted. Let's like hit some of these answers real quick. Question for episode five. This was in oh, yes. the wonderful new Facebook group. If you could vote for anyone besides Jesus and Brandon Craig, whom I don't know, for president, <laughs> who would you vote for and why? So um, we have a couple common themes here. Um, we have Harambe, the dead gorilla. Um, so get that jaundice out of here. Uh, and then we have um, – it seems like people still wanted to talk about politics, even though I was hoping we would have some some kind of crazy out there ones. Um, we've got Ben Sassy, Sassy. I think it's sassy. Either one of those is great. Either saucy or sassy is a phenomenal last name. Um, Could you just keep saying that? Sassy, 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 sassy. Um, ben Sassy, if I'm correct, is actually a, uh, I think he's from Nebraska. Does that sound right? Yes, I think you're correct. Uh, ben Sassy, I think he's he's either senator or co- uh, congress from Nebraska. He actually uh, went to seminary at Westminster Seminary in California. He did a recent interview on um, – Office hours was it office hours? Office hours, I think. Um, phenomenal guy. He's really talking a lot about the the religious liberty kinds of stuff. Um, I don't think he wants to be president at this point, um, but he would be a phenomenal president. So, uh, for the people who recommended him, good for you guys. Uh, Brandon Craig said Ron Paul, um, which would be uh, excellent as well. Um, Dan Shepard yeah. or Daniel Shepard. Mark Stein, I don't know who that is. Uh, he's not eligible though. Ted Cruz, um, not sure I can put my hat in with Ted Cruz anymore, but he um, he's on the list. Who else do we got? Robin Camp said Milton Friedman, which totally resonated with me because he's actually like a very famous American economist. So he is like routinely quoted for things like monetary theory and all kinds of other great stuff. So that is a name I didn't expect to see, but good on her for suggesting him. Yes. He's dead though. He is dead. You can still vote for him if you want. It's but highly unlikely that's going to work out. Yeah, I think I think being alive is a requirement. Suggestion. It probably should be. It probably should be. Otherwise, we got like weekend at Bernie's president style. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, and then we had uh, Jerry Deoli Olio. Jerry Deolio. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but um, he said we should vote for a guy like Al Mohler or Steve Lawson. Um, he did comment that Steve Lawson seems pretty laid back, like a Mr. Rogers type guy, but he might be an MMA legend. So I would love to see Steve Lawson drop some mad John X Jesus, uh, in the octagon. That'd be pretty, pretty epic. Seriously. That's like just taking the debates and putting them in a cage, which more or less may be the way that they are now. Yeah, that would be, that certainly would be an entertaining way to do the debates. So this is great. So Tony, um, how can people get in touch with us? Uh, by the way, I noticed there were some comments about people not even uh, knowing who the voices were behind this. So yes. I'm Jesse. You're Tony. Yes. This is the Reformed Brotherhood. Introductions have been made. So how can people get in touch with us, ask questions or suggest topics for us to Babylon about where can they do that? Well, I think the best way to get a hold of us is to actually just interact with us. So ju- jump on Facebook, look up the Reformed Brotherhood group. Um, you can do Facebook slash groups slash Reformed Brohood. Um, if you go to facebook.com slash Reformed Brotherhood, you'll get to our uh, page, which you can submit questions if you want. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Reformed Brohood. And then uh, we have Google Plus. Uh, so if you're one of the uh, several dozen people that still use Google Plus in the world, uh, you can check us out there. And then you can also email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to get your emails uh, as well there. We're huge on Google Plus. Right? We are. I think actually that's what encouraged Phillips, Craig, and Dean to recant of their moment. Yes, yes. They're like that Google Plus thing that's coming back. So I better be on the right track. Yeah, if that letter wasn't dated like 2014, I'd like to think that they listened to the episode on worship and they were like, man, yeah, I got to change this up. I better hit my Google Plus page and update that. Yeah, I got to get on that, change my profile. That's what's up. Yeah. 
Google Plus. Fan- biggest failed Fantastic. project ever. No, Google Plus has never gotten this much free advertising ever. Yeah, seriously. What we just gave them. Seriously. I, I Sometimes I look at Google and I'm like, what are you guys doing? They shut down Latitude. They shut down Google Google I Reader know. and Google uh, Listen, all these really great products. And then they leave Google Plus up. I just, I don't get it. Maybe there's some like niche group that uses it, but I just don't, I just don't get it. It's, it's a profound mystery. It is. And so this has been like politics, baptism, social technology, which by the way, I totally, and you can attest to this, Tony, because I have no experience in this. I totally joined Facebook so that I could actually be a pirate. I know, seriously. This group. So this is like, you know, my world is changing so rapidly. We've been trying to get Jesse to use Facebook for as long as I can remember. We've been trying to trick him into using Facebook. And all I had to do (laughs) was start a podcast and make a group with him. So yeah, this is great. I don't understand anything. And now I'm like administrator of sorts, which is like (laughs) fantastic. So yes. Yeah. For me, this is living the dream. So it's been great. So yeah, come interact with us on Facebook and we'll hope that, you know, again, like the 12 people that listen. We'll continue to suggest wonderful things and join the brotherhood. Great. All right. Any closing thoughts? No, I think we basically just dropped a bunch of closing thoughts throughout this entire thing. So I'm pretty much I'm pretty much out. Besides, definitely hit us up if you use Google Plus. Yes. I'm really curious to see if anybody does that. I have not actually logged into our Google Plus page. So <laughs> that's not the best way to get a hold of us. All right, well, go and rock that vote, and remember that God is sovereign and that uh, he makes leaders to rise and fall.